0: Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education pediatric podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds.
1: Good morning, everyone. Dr. Salazar is away on a well-deserved vacation, and it is my privilege on behalf of the Department of Pediatrics to welcome everyone today to Grand Rounds. So first, I wanna make a quick announcement. Our last evening lecture workshop for the year is this Thursday, March 17th from 6.30 to 8 p.m. with Dr. Corey Baker, who will be presenting updates in pediatric constipation. So we are thrilled to share with you today Dr. Anna Radovich, who will present A Crisis in Adolescent Mental Health, Can Technology Lead the Way Out? First, it's my honor to introduce Dr. Alyssa Bennett, our Division Head of Adolescent Medicine. So after studying chemistry at Skidmore College and attending medical school at the University of Vermont, Dr. Bennett completed her pediatric residency right here at Connecticut Children's. She then went to Boston Children's for a fellowship in adolescent medicine where she also completed the Boston Leadership Education for Adolescent Health Program. She returned to Connecticut Children's to become the division head and she is the inaugural holder of the Burton and Phyllis Hoffman Family Endowed Chair in Adolescent Medicine. Her awards and accomplishments are really too numerous to list. She is a compassionate, knowledgeable, and inspiring physician who tirelessly is dedicated to the youth
0: of Connecticut.
1: My pleasure to introduce Dr. Alyssa Bennett.
0: Thank you, Dr. Orsi. Good morning. It's my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Anna Radovich. She completed her undergraduate and medical degrees at Case Western, uh, followed by a pediatric residency at UPMC, uh, Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. Uh, She obtained her Master of Science in Clinical Research and Comparative Effectiveness uh, at the University of Pittsburgh, as well as a T32 postdoctoral scholar. Uh, she then completed her Adolescent Medicine Fellowship in Pittsburgh um, and then joined their faculty as an assistant professor. While she was uh, an attending there, uh, she actually was the research mentor of our very own Dr. Jessica McCormick, who's one of my colleagues in adolescent medicine. That's the connection in terms of why we have the pleasure of Dr. Radovich joining us today for Grand Rounds. Um, she is currently the Medical Director of Health Services at Carlo University. She's also the Director of Clinical Research and the Director of Youth Research Advisory Board for the Division of Adolescent and Young Adult Health at Pittsburgh. She's the PI and co-PI of four active grants through the National Institute of Mental Health and the National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities. She has had um, numerous publications and presentations on the topic of adolescent medicine um, and mental health and its connection to technology. Uh, at both the local and national levels, including last week, she presented at our National Adolescent Medicine Conference, SAM, which was virtual. Another fun fact about Dr. Radovich is she actually is great at networking and loves to connect um, people through networking. And she attributes this skill to her days in a college sorority. So um, please join me in welcoming Dr. Radovich to Connecticut Children's. And we look forward to her presentation this morning. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much, Dr. Bennett. And thanks Dr. McCormick for inviting me and sharing that fun fact. (laughs) So I'm gonna talk to you today about a crisis in adolescent mental health. Can technology lead the way out? And as was said, I do receive funding from the National Institute of Health. And I also serve on a scientific advisory board for APA Health, but I won't be talking about any of their interventions today. Today I'm going to describe to you some recent changes in mental health morbidity in adolescents. And hopefully I'll help you understand the current deficits in US mental health services, which is my primary area of research. And at the end of the talk, hopefully you can name three possible technology solutions to address these deficits. So first talking about adolescent mental health morbidity. As you can see on the right, there's a graph looking at age over years and the cumulative percent of burden of different mental health disorders. In the red is anxiety. Anxiety typically begins at a younger age. You'll notice things like anxiety about school, anxiety about leaving parents, and then progresses to adult levels with a cumulative morbidity of 31.9%. The blue line is behavior, so things like ADHD, conduct disorder, and then the green line are mood disorders like depression and bipolar, which approach cumulative morbidity in, of 14% and don't really get going until around age 12 or 13, which is why it's a big focus in adolescent medicine. The purple line being substance use, which reaches adult levels later on. In this graph, you can see trends over the years in different categories of mental health concerns. Internalizing problems are things that you can't readily see on exam with a hyperactive child with behavior issues being externalizing. So internalizing is things more like depression, anxiety. And these types of mental health problems have been increasing over the past decade while externalizing problems have been decreasing and relationship and school-related problems have been more stagnant. And so my primary area of research is in these internalizing problems. I'm going to be talking mostly about depression, anxiety, and suicidality. But of course, there are other mental health problems that are very concerning, uh, like eating disorder, bipolar, um, and and uh, ADHD and other externalizing disorders. So when we look at the percentage of US high school students who report having suicidal thoughts, this is in the Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance Survey, which looks at high school students reporting anonymously. And so you might trust their uh, self-report a little bit more. Overall, you can see trends in those who seriously consider suicide, those who made a suicide plan, attempted suicide, and an attempt requiring treatment. Where white youth in the teal have higher rates of seriously considering suicide, black youth have higher rates of the consequences of suicidality, including attempting suicide and attempts requiring treatment, as do Hispanic youth to a lesser extent. And so you'll see, I'll mention again, there is a campaign about sounding the alarm for kids. And one major concern over recent years is that Black children under age 13 are twice as likely to die by suicide than their white peers. And the rate of death by suicide among Black youth has increased faster than any other racial or ethnic group. And this is a problem that, is currently being investigated as to why is this occurring, but obviously in this climate, we're thinking more about what are environmental causes and access issues, which I'll go into later. And then when we look at groups that are sexual identity minorities, so lesbian, gay, or bisexual, their rates of seriously considering suicide in youth is almost 50% which is a huge, huge difference. Uh, Almost 23% attempt suicide. That's a fifth of youth who are lesbian, gay, or bisexual. And so this is a major concern in this population and also one that's influenced by environmental uh, policy factors. If you look now at trends prior to the pandemic over the past decade in terms of adolescents who had experienced a major depressive episode, you can see on the left in terms of age and on the right in terms of gender that rates have been increasing over time. But then with the COVID-19 pandemic, on top of that already increasing rate, there's been a crisis on top of a crisis where the COVID-19 pandemic, as reported by the World Health Organization, triggered 25% increase in prevalence of anxiety and depression worldwide. This study was looking at emergency department visits comparing 2021 to 2020 and 2019. The top graph is in girls and the bottom is in boys. And as you can see, the solid line in 2021, in the same weeks, the same season, there were increased numbers of weekly emergency department visits for suspected suicide attempts among adolescents aged 12 to 17. And this has been a huge increase, less so in boys. And for this reason, the Children's Hospital uh, Office Association put together a group of shared organizations, including the Society of Adolescent Health and Medicine, which I represent on this group, and multiple others like the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry in this campaign called Sound the Alarm for Kids and drawing attention to the need to address this huge problem that was already increasing prior to the pandemic and then really increased after the pandemic. And you might have seen in the past several months, Dr. Vivek Murthy put out a US Surgeon General's advisory about protecting youth mental health. This is the website where you can read a lot more about the various issues that are plaguing our mental health system for children. And so I wanted to present a case to draw together some kind of current issues to consider. E is a 15-year-old girl who presents to your outpatient pediatric primary care clinic with her mother. You last saw E about a year ago for a well-child visit, and there was only a concern of mild intermittent asthma. Prior to seeing her, you find on chart review that she was seen two weeks ago in a psychiatric emergency department for an episode of self-harm. She had cut her arm with a razor and then went to show her mom what happened because she was scared about what she had done. The providers there determined her safety was not at risk as she had no suicidal intent and provided her with a list of resources, instructing her to follow up with you. Her mother is in tears as soon as you sit down, she says, I'm so worried about her and I don't know what to do. E's mother says that E has become very depressed and isolated and she has called all of the numbers that Ed provided her with as well as some she found online. And the earliest appointment she could get with a therapist is in three months. She feels scared to let E out of her sight until then. What do you do? And so now I'm going to highlight Some deficits in the US mental health services, which maybe had they not or did they not exist, uh, E's mother would not feel like she was in a crisis. And so one of these deficits is that there are missed opportunities for early linkage to treatment. We know that early diagnosis and treatment improves outcomes in mental health for adolescents. And although they're not perfect, there is plenty of evidence for the benefit of antidepressant medications and psychotherapy, especially for anxiety, as well as in depression in adolescents. But delays in treatment after having the initial symptoms and along with delays in diagnosis for mood The delayed in treatment can be six to eight years for anxiety, nine to 23 years, especially if there's an earlier onset. And what can happen in those times are all of the things that we don't want to happen, like turning to substance use, having relationship problems, academic failures, and also a lot of somatic concerns that many of you might be seeing. Yet a minority of young people receive treatment. And so this graph on the left shows the percentage receiving treatment for depression, for major depressive episode for youth uh, ages 12 to 17. And it's only about 40%. That means almost two thirds receive no treatment. And then on the right, you can see a table looking at what percent of teens who've had a diagnosis are actually taking antidepressants for depression. And it's only about 11%. The percent taking stimulants out of those who have ADHD is about 20% and so on. And then even if you're looking and wanting treatment, there's limited access to evidence-based treatment. And many of you are probably well aware that there are workforce shortages for behavioral health specialists who have expertise in adolescence, in child psychiatry, in therapy. And then just in general, there is workforce shortage, as seen on this New York Times article about nobody has openings. Then there are wait times for psychotherapy. Then when you do access someone to provide psychotherapy, their training and background is variable and it might require quite a bit of investigating on the parent's part to know whether that provider is providing evidence-based psychotherapy such as cognitive behavioral therapy. There's also lack of reimbursement and inadequate access to insurance coverage for services. And so what do you do while you wait um, you're very stressed out. This parent of ease doesn't know what severity is E at. Should she be super worried about her? Um, is the self-harm going to lead to suicidality? Was it just a one-time thing? Um, how does she know what to do next? And some people might just give up. Then even when people engage with treatment, they might get inadequate treatment because they don't follow through with all of that treatment. So about 50% of patients who have mild or sub-syndromal symptoms and 20 to 60% who've had an initial depressive episode are at risk for a future depressive episode. So these folks, these young people have you know, low PHQ-9 score, but they need some kind of intervention. But two-thirds of adolescents who are newly identified with depression in primary care receive no symptom monitoring, and 19% receive no symptom reassessment or a follow-up visit. Looking at Medicaid-enrolled use, about 42% of them who require antidepressants will have adherence to them over five months we can think about minimal psychotherapy being at least four visits within 12 weeks. And in Medicaid enrolled youth, that's about 38%. And then in the meantime, while these young people are waiting, who are they interacting with? They're interacting with primary care providers, subspecialist providers, they're interacting with teachers, and then they're interacting with a whole host of other adults. For example, coaches, um, people who are working in workforce development settings like Job Corps kind of settings, in juvenile justice, they're interacting with other adults who, if they had some knowledge about mental health, how to identify, how to triage, how to help with crisis, might be able to provide some support along with their parent. And then Two other issues issues I wanna raise in the problems with mental health services is that one, there's heterogeneous groups that might need different interventions. So looking at sexual and gender minority or LGBTQ youth, they have lower rates of accessing mental health care, even though I showed you previously, they have higher needs. And barriers include things like having lack of family support or outright family rejection, They can be concerned that they might not want to reveal that they are LGBTQ, but they might feel like that is going to happen if they seek care for therapy. And then they might lack access to professionals who are affirming about their sexual orientation and gender identity, and they may have concerns about confidentiality. Then looking at non-Caucasian youth, so Black and brown youth, This is a very recent study by Strawn and colleagues where they were looking at three trials in childhood depression and anxiety, including adolescence, where they were comparing SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors plus cognitive behavioral therapy versus SSRI alone. So SSRI alone is in the blue and SSRI plus CBT is in the red. And you can see there's a small difference in the blue between Caucasian and non-Caucasian youth, where there's a much larger difference in the red between Caucasian youth and non-Caucasian youth, with the lower solid line showing greater improvement over 12 weeks. And so you think about antidepressants working biologically, having less kind of mm, dependence on the user, just take the medicine and that's it. Versus psychotherapy, you're having to interact with a person, having a therapeutic alliance. They're going to have to think of examples in your life. And if they can't relate to you or if they don't recognize that there's kind of other concerns you have, um, then that can be an issue. So there's multiple reasons. So most of these trials that were developing cognitive behavioral therapy did not include a large number of non-Caucasian youth. And so this is a major issue in terms of the interventions not being adequate for all youth. And then even um, one of the major things is having crisis prevention. So we want to prevent the worst thing from happening, which would be death. But in primary care, where a lot of youth are seen, there's inadequate suicide risk management. So if every teen that is screened If they tell you that they're suicidal and they're sent straight to the emergency room, they're going to worry about that as a consequence. Where really only the minority need that type of referral and others need interventions that I'll show you in a few slides that you can use. Um, But referral to emergency departments might decrease adolescents' desire to engage with treatment. If you think about it, that's not an enjoyable experience, it might be scary, especially if you're an adult emergency department with other folks who might be having psychiatric problems like psychosis or substance use. Um, And adults, number one reason actually for not disclosing in psychotherapy about suicidality is having this fear of hospitalization. So then getting to the point of this talk, which is what are possible technology solutions? These are obviously very complex problems. That being said, there may be ways that technology can be helpful, but not curative. (laughs) And so one thing I want to bring up, I'm gonna bring up basically a bunch of different projects that I've been working on and just give you a snippet knowing that we only have a short time together, but I'm happy to answer questions. Um, You can see my Twitter handle on the bottom and definitely reach out if you have questions about any of these. But um, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force requires universal and targeted screening in multiple settings for um, adolescents age 12 to 18 for a major depressive disorder. Um, they don't require, they recommend. Um, but with insurance companies taking up some of their recommendations, uh, many of you may have implemented this in your settings. The caveat is that screening should be implemented with adequate systems in place to ensure accurate diagnosis, effective treatment, and appropriate follow-up. But that's much more difficult to do as compared to just handing out the screener. What to do with it when you get it back can be complex. This is a resource that just came out about two weeks ago, but has been in preparation for a while uh, by the AAP and American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. It's the Blueprint for Youth Suicide Prevention. It brought together a lot of experts, uh, a lot of community, you know, nonprofits like AFSP, to put together tools to help you in your setting um, with addressing suicide, which is the second leading cause of death among young people, 10 to 24. So I'm a pediatrician, I'm not a psychiatrist, but again, this is the second leading cause of death in adolescents. It's something I think about a lot. <clears throat> so I encourage you to check out this resource. There's tons of stuff like how to do brief suicide safety assessment, um, a lot of resources for you. And so uh, I'm part of a center called the Etudes Center, which is a large center grant funded by National Institute of Mental Health. And we work on multiple projects to assist with primary care um, in addressing depression and suicidality. Screening Wizard is a tool that I work with my co-PI, Oliver Lindheim. Uh, It's a brief web-based screening tool that's provided to both the adolescent and the caregiver. It has the PHQ-9, but then it has more than that. So it also screens for anxiety, suicidality, mania, and substance use, which are comorbidities you might want to know about before deciding whether or not to prescribe an antidepressant, for example. It includes both the adolescent and caregiver report, and it also includes asking about readiness, treatment preferences, and potential barriers to treatment. So here's an example of a printout of Screening Wizard, which shows readiness, preferences, and barriers to treatment from the adolescent and parent perspective. Screening Wizard helps to inform primary care providers at the time of screening about these issues so that instead of just getting the PHQ-9 score, you get the PHQ-9 score plus like this kid wants antidepressants, their parent is worried about medication, Um, their parent is not worried about cost, but the teen is and they both agree that time is an issue. Um, So you get all this information to help you guide the family. And this is another example on the left of the summary score where it highlights some issues that um, you would wanna address today. And then others you can schedule a follow-up visit to address if they're not acute issues. In a pilot trial of screening wizard versus usual care in 12 to 19 year olds, we found that screening wizard was feasible, usable, acceptable, and effective in supporting clinician decisions and in incorporating adolescents' and caregivers' readiness, barriers, and preferences. And it resulted in a greater likelihood of referral to mental health treatment about 54% versus 18%. Excuse me. <clears throat> Another thing I wanted to bring up this is work by. One of my colleagues, Kristen Ray, uh, in our general academic pediatric department, about e consultation models. So, on the left, you can see that a patient through an e electronic method can access a subspecialist, versus on the bottom, a generalist on behalf of a patient could access a subspecialist. And they could do this in a live way, so at the same time, or a store and forward asynchronous way, where they send information and then get that information back. So there are projects like you may have heard of Project Echo, where you get tele mentoring. And so maybe a uh, you were talking about the constipation lecture. Maybe uh, you would talk to a family about their constipation and then consult with a um, GI, and then co- they would give advice. And then you would talk back to the family about that. And there are these types of models for child psychiatry, which you may or may not have used, called Child Psychiatry Access Programs, originally started in Massachusetts and then spread to other states and were supported by HERSA funding um, in different years. So this is a map of where, what all states have it, and then there's continued investment um, through HRSA for further funding to support these programs. In Connecticut, you have Access Mental Health CT, And a study by my mentor, Brad Stein at RAND found that children living in states with a statewide child psychiatric telephonic consultation program had significantly greater parent reported child mental health service use than children in states without such programs. Then you might be wondering, what about if you take the therapist out of the picture and you have a computer give cognitive behavioral therapy? And so there's lots of apps and different things out there that exist, but I do recommend evidence-based approaches like cognitive behavioral therapy, even if they are computerized. And studies have found that internet-based CBT compared to -to face-to-face CBT were equivalent in adult samples. There have been smaller, less than 18-year-old samples, but they've still found equivalence with guided internet-based CBT having better effects than non-guided. So that means CBT that you would do on your own through a program versus you have a coach or maybe a therapist that you're touching base with in between. If you think about it, someone who has anxiety where they have maybe some more perfectionism, they might be driven to complete these modules, but someone who has depression and is less motivated might need some more support to actually get through the CBT modules. And so for it to work, you have to do it. And how do you decide whether or not to recommend something like this to a patient? So a resource, two resources I want to notify you about. Um, One of them is called onemindcyberguide.org and it lists the user experience, credibility, transparency, professional reviews. So they look at what's the research supporting this app, What have users said? What have professionals said? So you can see kind of this well-rounded rating of different apps that are out there. And they're also organized by different kinds of concerns. You can search like social anxiety and find something. You can see if it's been studied in children. And then another one is this app advisor by American Psychiatric Association. So don't just recommend, look up some of the professional reviews. So an intervention that I started off my career with and I'm still working on is called sober Supporting Our Valued Adolescents. And these are two websites, one for teens and one for parents. They're accessible to you. I encourage you to check them out, see some of the articles. If you'd like to share them with any of the youth you provide care to, feel free. Every day there is a new blog post and it covers things like psychoeducation, and covering negative health beliefs. So what are reasons why some young people might not want treatment and how to kind of think through those, Um, provides guidance on social media and information about other resources that are out there, which there are many. And instead of being a social media site kind of where young people can just talk to each other, um, it's very controlled. So we view everything that goes into the site We have young people who write articles, but we review them before they're posted. And then we have young people using discussion board and commenting in referral to the articles. But we view everything that they post. And they're all anonymous to each other and can't have private conversations uh, outside or inside of the site. And so the goal is that it's a safe space for them to go and share uh, what's been going on with their lives and relate to each other and say, wow, I had a difficult experience also seeing a therapist for the first time and here's how I got through it. The Purpose is that this is a tool that providers can give to young people who are in this kind of in-between phase waiting for treatment, or maybe they've been in treatment but they still need some support along the way. These are some examples of the teen site, the parent site in the blue and then some comments and discussion that was had on the site. In a pilot efficacy trial where we randomized 35 youth, but only 24 completed follow-up measures at three months, 85% of adolescents randomized to SOVA received mental health treatment compared to 55% randomized to enhanced usual care. And these were youth that were difficult to recruit because we were trying to catch them at the time that they were initially being referred for treatment. This is an article over the pandemic that was written about quarantine and depression um, and how that's affected this young person. So young people that we recruit to write for our sites, they're paid about $10 a month if they write. And we've had a lot of interest Um, They're called Blogging Ambassadors of 66 showing interest in this one um, snapshot of our study. 71% completed at least one blog post. They were satisfied with their experience. They rated website usability as good. They showed increased self-esteem, youth competence, and confidence. One quote is, it may be because of COVID, but my mental health has been a roller coaster. So I needed this blog to feel sane. The blogs have really helped me have a space to let out how I feel and also learn from others. Another young person said, if I were in high school again, and I was able to see where I'd be in five or 10 years from that age, I would be amazed at my progress and would feel so hopeful about my future. This blog is successful in making that connection, and I fully support its mission. And then a major project I've been working on for the past few years is called Moodring. Moodring uses passively sensed data. So before I go into that, you might be wondering what that is if you haven't heard of it. So probably all of you have a smartphone and your smartphone makes decisions about what to do based on data it's collecting about you. Um, So it makes a decision of whether to, um, you know, turn on a pedometer that you are walking um, or suggests, you know, why don't you use this Nike running app? Because it knows somehow you're running. How does it know? Because there are these sensors that are keeping track of movement in your phone. There's also sensors keeping track of how much light is being shined on your phone. And then your phone decides whether to have a brighter screen if it's dark or a darker screen if it's light outside. So there are a lot of sensors, how much Wi-Fi are you connected to, et cetera. And these sensors have been mapped onto patterns of being a human. And so um, there are ways to extract the data from these sensors, put them through computers using machine learning and match them onto how people self-report about depression. And we've done a study in teens looking that we could uh, predict how they self-reported or guess how they self-reported based on how they use their phone. And so what we're doing is using this passive sensing data but we're not compromising privacy because we're not capturing anything that they're texting. We don't have anything even from their app use or their social media use, only really patterns of behavior And a lot of this has to do with predicting whether or not they're sleeping, how well they're sleeping based on how much screen time they're using at certain hours and things like this. Um, And so there's an app for parents that we've developed and an app for teens where we share with them, hey, we predict that your weekly mood score is this in terms of severity level. And then there's also a clinician dashboard that shares mood score, tags and also how adolescents self-report their mood and whether they use mood builders. Mood builders are coping strategies that we've put into the app that hopefully young people can use some of these for self-management before maybe they go and um, wait until things get bad enough that they need to see a provider. Can they use things? Can they use their effective coping strategies? Um, and then the coping strategy suggestions are connected to our SOVA intervention website. And so the goal is that in current standard of care, the patient needs to recognize their symptoms are getting worse and then schedule themselves to see their provider. Versus in Moodring, the symptoms are tracked automatically in the patient, parent, and clinician are prompted that they're worsening. And this way, we can match uh, follow up appointments with severity instead of just guessing, well, I think you need to come back in three months, but maybe you'll be completely fine, then we'll have nothing to talk about. Or maybe you should have come back in two months because that's really when things got worse. And in psychiatry, matching the intervention to severity worsening improves outcomes. And so instead of having these worse, symptoms leading to worse health health outcomes, hopefully earlier intervention could improve health outcomes. And we're studying that right now. Two other grants that I have funded just an introduction that are just getting started off is looking at our blogging ambassador program, but looking at it in low resource youth. And seeing that prior slide about cognitive behavioral therapy not being the same for non-Caucasian youth, these youth that we're studying with low resource are mostly not Caucasian. And um, we know that we need to adapt it for a different setting. Mostly we've had kind of college age youth do our intervention. This is a workforce development setting. So we're gonna use the implementation mapping process to understand how do we get this intervention to fit this setting and for it to be useful in a place where young people already are adults who care about young people already are, how can we give them the tools that they need to support these young people's mental health? And then another study I'm doing is looking at sexual and gender minority youth. We're recruiting them from social media and asking them about how did they seek help for their mental health. And then we're creating a series of mini interventions based on these interviews that we'll be testing with them. And this is an example of journey mapping, which is a usability strategy to understand. And so lastly, I just have two more slides left. Um, I wanted to mention a crisis prevention study called Bright Path, which is part of Etudes. This is not one that I work directly on, but I wanted to share with you because you're able to use this intervention clinically if you go to this website and go through the steps. Bright Path is an app that incorporates safety planning and emotion regulation to help young people rate their real-time distress, monitor their symptoms, and apply a safety plan at the moment that they need it As a form of suicide prevention, and has already shown some evidence with uh, adolescents who've been hospitalized for suicidality. But what's really needed, these are all kinds of things that we're trying to fix a system that needs a serious overhaul. And you might have seen recently in the State of the Union, President Biden announced a strategy to address national mental health crisis, especially a focus on children, including expanding access to tele and virtual mental health care, increasing navigators, peers, other trained professionals that have basic mental health skills supporting schools. Okay. So in summary, while adolescent mental health morbidity, especially for internalized disorders and suicidality is increasing, Current deficits in the U.S. mental health service system persist, including late or no linkage to treatment, especially for minoritized populations. Technological advancements offer various solutions or adjuncts to expand access to and enhance mental health services, but advocacy efforts are needed to make these a reality. I'd like to acknowledge our uh, etudes center and some of my colleagues there, as well as New Room, which is a small business I work with. And Asana Doria, who's is a computer scientist I work with on Moodring because I actually don't understand anything that she's doing, but we're trying to do it. And Kayla Odenthal and Sonic Cream on my research team. These are my kids when it was snowy in Pittsburgh, even though it was snowy again recently. And um, definitely feel free to reach out to me in my email um, or Twitter, with any questions after this talk.
1: Thank you. That was an absolutely fabulous presentation. We have a couple of questions that have come through in the Q&A. And please, everyone, enter more questions if you have them. So in prescribing antidepressants, how do you manage the risk of suicide attempt, taking that medication versus adolescent participation in their care? Maybe the question is about the black box warning. Yes, I would agree with that interpretation.
2: Okay. Okay. Um, and so, in terms of the black box warning, there was a meta-analysis putting all of that data together, looking at the group of youth who uh, didn't received placebo and then group group of youth who received antidepressant, and the difference in terms of there were no suicide attempts, but in terms of suicidal thoughts and plan, um, an attempt the rate was two in 100 in the placebo group and four in 100 in the group taking antidepressants. So so the relative difference is only two in 100, even though you can also look at it as being double. So what I tell families is that there is a very low risk. There was a low difference between these groups and no one died from suicide. Yet it's important that you follow up with me um, about this if it happens. And it can be difficult in youth who already have some suicidality, um, but tracking with them in terms of, um, are there differences in that suicidality? And if when, once they start antidepressants and does it seem to be out of the blue and not make sense to their kind of typical suicidality, um, so one time I had someone in college and she had increased suicidality at the time of starting antidepressant, but she had also broken up with her boyfriend at the same time. So it was kind of unclear. So that is rare. Um, and I think it's something that you can talk with families about. But those are the types of situations because mental health care is so nuanced, it really helps to have a team approach. And we have social workers in our clinic um, and and so subjective. So we'll kind of sit down together and say, okay, well, they said this, they said this. We'll put all of these kind of thinking together to help make a decision because it can be tough to do it on your own. This is why these e-consult programs are helpful. Sometimes when I've called, like our program is called TIPS, I've called them and I knew what I was going to do and I still did the same thing, but I felt better about it because I had a colleague that could support me in my decision and affirm that I wasn't missing at something. So sometimes... Just not having the experience can be difficult. And so in that situation, like even if you know what I just told you about this data and what to do, if you still feel uncomfortable, making that call to them can be kind of helpful for your own kind of feeling okay with the patient you. Thank you.
1: In this month's Journal of Pediatrics, there was a a series of articles on gender health that raise and address the issues cited for the group with gender health concerns. Is this an area that requires more and more urgent attention?
2: Yes, for sure. Especially what's difficult in terms of what I was kind of alluding to is that there's only so much that we can do in terms of research where some of the... Um, work now is in advocacy because uh, there have been studies showing that there's increased suicidality in individuals who are gender minority who live in states where there's unwelcoming policies. Um, And so actually the kind of threats to gender care that are happening in some states as policy issues are a big concern for youth. Also, um, a lot of youth have trouble accessing treatment and providing them with well-rounded medical and psychiatric treatment in whatever capacity is required um, can help decrease some of their suicidality as well. Um, So it's it's definitely a big issue.
1: Thank you. Do you have any concerns with the use of technology for interventions, potentially increasing health disparities for families that don't always have steady access to smart technologies? Are there ways to reduce that potential impact?
2: Yes, for sure. Yep. So that's where I kind of go back at you with the advocacy in terms of we need to have broadband access um, for families. So we see that with telehealth that, we've really been able to expand access. So for example, in um, Pennsylvania, I've seen Amish families who used to have to get a ride to come um, pool all of their kind of finances together to come into clinic. And I've been able to see them virtually on a smartphone, which, you know, depending on the type of Amish, whether they have access to that technology or not. Um, There's other potential solutions like having central uh, areas where folks can access telemedicine, like a kiosk or like at a primary care um, center so that the subspecialist doesn't have to physically be there, but the patient can access care. Um, Accessing care in schools can help with disparities. So having mechanisms where um, the telehealth care can be provided within the school during the school setting could help with young people not missing school but also having that access to um, the technology when you look at smartphone ownership there is actually not as much um, disparity but more so it's the access to having wi-fi data uh, uh, services and so having that access to broadband And making um, Wi-Fi and broadband a utility, just like electricity, so that when families get their electricity cut, you know, there's things we can do, at least Pennsylvania, like it's pediatricians, and I'm sure they're to say, hey, this kid has asthma, Um, they need their nebulizer machine, they need their electricity, this is a health issue. Um, Hopefully we can get to that point with technology as well, as we become really more dependent on it for health.
1: Should... I think back to the depression question on medication, Um, should care provider manage medication or should adolescents have more of a management role in their own medication given the risk of suicidality with the medications?
2: So um, in terms of risk of suicidality with medication, that's one of the reasons why we usually prescribe SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like fluoxetine or sertraline because they don't have that risk of the suicidality like the older generation tricyclic antidepressants did. Um, and so I think definitely in the theme of transition um, and helping adolescents have ownership of their own health care, it's important to let them have kind of ownership of getting their antidepressant. That being said, it would be more of the parent supporting a young person who's really, if they're more severely depressed and not motivated and are having problems with their sleeping, and they might not just have the capability of remembering to take their medication every day. Same goes with ADHD and stimulants. It's more important probably if the child is suicidal for the parents to lock up their own medications. So things that could actually be harmful, especially if the parent is on like a antihypertensive, if there are any opiates in the house and things like that. Um, to remove substances, so harm reduction, and to have safe gun storage. Um, So those would be some of the major things to look into. Thank you.
1: I'm so impressed by the apps that you have, including the the mood ring. (laughs) I'm curious. How... How do you introduce it to your adolescent patients to increase their acceptability? I, as a parent of teens, I can imagine trying to introduce such an app on phones for your teenagers. How do you, how do you recommend people introduce these apps for their patients and their children?
2: Yeah. So MoodRing currently, we we've just developed it, and so we're just about to start recruiting for a trial. But we have got teen and parent input throughout. About it. And I think one of the major things is um, teens having ownership of that app and ha- um, being able to personalize it. So, for example, we have different categories of depression severity. And instead of us saying like moderate, severe, we let them name their categories. Um, the parent gets a weekly notification of the kind of severity that's predicted by the, the app. But anything else, the teen has to give permission for their parent to get access. So can my parents see how my sleep is? You know, so I think the more kind of control they have and then using that as like a reward. So if the parent says, hey, what's going on with you? You're really irritable. Are you getting more depressed? And the kid says, yeah, actually, I am getting more depressed instead of the parent saying, well, this is going to happen, you're going to need to quit soccer, whatever it is, that they can have some more um, ownership by having that app. So using it as like a tool to complete the, um, to get to to what the team needs. So then if, if, if they have more self-management, then that is kind of like a, a reward. So that was kind of the idea of mood rings, like personalizing, having privacy, those are important things to teens. Um, and then just in general, in terms of other apps, it's like, what does the teen see in it for them? And um, giving them apps that were created for a different population, like adults, might not be as useful. We really need like youth voice involved in developing these tools. We have this youth research advisory board um, where they help to give researchers feedback because you're right, if you make something without asking them what
1: they want, they're probably not going to want to use it. Absolutely. Thank you. There was a question about the apps and um, whether or not they could be used with identification of a problem or worsening and then be connected to a referral resource. We are the National Center for the Help Me Grow program here at Connecticut Children's. And that focuses on, on early childhood and connecting to community systems and resources, Can you do you think an app could work in a system similar for, for resources on mental health?
2: Yeah, for sure. That's an awesome question. I think what's difficult in the research setting is that we're kind of testing things out to see if they work. But then once we see that they work and then we want people to use them, that's the whole area of implementation science. So like once these things exist, how do you connect them to um, people who could benefit from them um, and use them? So definitely that is uh, something that uh, can be useful. So all of these like apps that we're working on have this clinician portal where there can be a clinician who has like a group of young people, and then they see how are they using their app. So have they checked in? Have they used any of the modules and things like that? Um, So there's definitely ways to connect multiple types of users. Um, So if you had uh, other community resources and they want to connect through these apps, um, definitely I think that can be something that can happen for mental health. But there's a lot of great research in this area actually at University of Connecticut, they're having uh, a media center that has done some neat neat work. Um, so definitely keep your eye out for things like that. And then sometimes computer science uh, schools in universities are looking for ways to help the community and partner with clinicians to develop um, tools that can help serve their purpose because they're kind of wanting to do more things to um, improve their social environment um, so definitely there's potential for that if it doesn't already exist
1: thank you so much so as a concluding announcement i just want to make sure everyone knows to join in next week for our grand rounds with our honorary cook lecture with dr daniel van Alman on advances in pediatric surgery oncology and i'm going to pass the baton to dr
0: bennett for closing statements Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Orsi. Thank you so much, Dr. Um, Radovich. We, um, I, I was taking notes on my phone the whole time with all these apps and all these resources. So um, we, we appreciate it so much. We're glad to have you join us virtually. Um, and thank you all uh, for joining us for Grand Rounds. Have a great rest of your week. Thank you. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing, or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at connecticutchildrens.org/podcast/grand-rounds.